welcome to another episode of Intelligence for Your Life, the podcast. I'm Gib Gerard. Our guest today is Dr. Gail Gross. Now, she is a childhood development expert, and she is the author of the book, How to Build Your Baby's Brain. She has won a ton of awards. In fact, I believe How to Build Your Baby's Brain was the children's book of 2019. Like It was voted the number one childhood development book of 2019. So she, uh, she knows what she's talking about. Uh, this episode is a little dense. She is a very informed uh, individual. I mean, she, she knows her stuff. So we are going to get into some serious depth about the effect of, of screen time and structured time and all of those things uh, and, and the effects of, of stress of COVID on your unborn children, on your children that are, uh, that are out and about right now. So fantastic for all of that. But also the tenants that she delivers are, are applicable to you as well. And the, uh, the effect of stress is something that you need to mitigate uh, as well. Uh, some of the big, you know, the big bullet points for you guys to take away if you can't sit through the whole thing. And I left it, I wanted her words to speak for themselves, so I left it pretty much unedited. Uh, the, uh, the big takeaways for me are that we need to have more boredom in our lives. We need to stop stimulating ourselves all the time, and that goes for us and for our kids. Unstructured play is really important. Uh, we need to be meditating. That is as simple as sitting and focusing on your breath, uh, a prayer life, whatever that looks like for you. But we need to be getting quiet in, in those times. Uh, and, and we need to be f- learning how to get around our stress. So those, those are two really big ones. Um, and, and you can listen, again, to the whole, to the whole uh, interview and get the actual detail of what we need in our lives. We also need to be limiting our, our screen time. Uh, it's just it's just a fact. It's not just for our kids. It's also for us as adults. So again, Dr. Gail Gross coming up in a minute. I'm also going to give you two quick pieces of intelligence when we get back from this quick break. But first, a real quick word from John uh, and our sponsors, uh, Rocket Mortgage from Quicken Loans. So here is John with our sponsor, Rocket Mortgage from Quicken Loans. Home today is so much more than it was yesterday. But at Rocket Mortgage, home is still all about you. During these challenging times, the top priority at Rocket Mortgage is the health and safety of the communities they serve. And one thing that will never change is their team's commitment to giving you the best mortgage experience possible. That's why if you need mortgage support, their team of experts is there to answer questions and offer solutions. They understand that hardships happen and they are here to help. Whether that means working with you to save money on your mortgage or finding a new way to navigate payments. If you have questions, the team at Rocket Mortgage has answers. They know how important your home is to you because you're important to them. If you need mortgage assistance, the home loan experts at Rocket Mortgage are available to help 24 hours a day, 7 days a week. From their home to yours, the team at Rocket Mortgage is with you. Visit rocketmortgage.com slash tesh to learn more. Call for cost information and conditions. Equal housing lender licensed in all 50 states. NMLSconsumeraccess.org number 3030. Once again, want to say a quick thank you. One more thank you to Rocket Mortgage from Quicken Loans for making today possible. Check them out if you guys have any financing needs. That is definitely something you should be doing. And here is an odd way to lower your risk of depression. Take up hula hooping. The University of Miami says the motion involved in hula hooping in which you sway back and forth side to side can actually relax your nervous system in two minutes. It lifts a person's mood and reduces stress for up to two hours. Clinical psychologist Dr. Jim Seggers says hula hooping is good for people suffering from depression. He says it trains the mind to be present 
to keep the hoop up and moving, and that helps break the cycle of negative thinking, keeping people in the here and now, which again, you know, we're going to talk about, about uh, meditation in a minute. Hula hooping, you can call that a form of meditation. It also combats depression at the cellular level by releasing feel-good endorphins and stimulating nerve cells that improve the brain's ability to regulate emotions. So hula hoop for two minutes, just two minutes to lift your mood, and it will lift your mood actually for two hours. So two minutes of hula hooping is like two hours of, of mood alteration, and keep doing it uh, to better regulate your emotions long-term. I cannot hula hoop. Um, if you would like, I, I, I should probably post it on my social. I am terrible at hula hooping. I, I'm terrible at the good hula or the normal hula hoops. I can actually hula hoop with the weighted like aerobic hula hoop. So I have, I have done that, um, and that, that I can do, but it hurts. I cannot regular hula hoop. I look terrible. I look like a moron. Okay, one last thing. Since this pandemic began, a lot of people took up hobbies uh, to keep themselves occupied, baking bread, learning guitar. Well, it seems there's a happy side effect to those hobbies. They may help you sleep better. Scientists from NYU say the secret to a good night's sleep is having a rewarding hobby. They found that, um, found that those who enjoy relaxing pastimes, like baking, gardening, dancing, playing an instrument, are more likely to experience better quality sleep and feel more rested when they wake up. Hobbies, though, they only work if the people have a passion for them and find them satisfying. So you can't just take up baking or gardening because you want to sleep better. You actually have to be passionate about it. You also want to help you sleep if you, if you become obsessed with them. So your hobby has to be a balanced part of your life. If it's like, I mean, maybe this is you, model shipbuilding, you can't be like so into model shipbuilding that you neglect your health and your family and stuff. It has to just be a, a balanced hobby. Researchers call it having a harmonious passion for an activity. That's when it has a healthy effect on your well-being, not a detrimental one. Study found that participants who became obsessed with their hobby, like golfers, everybody knows that golfer who you know skips their kid's birthday party because they're having a good round and they want to finish the 18, uh, that, that you have worse sleep when you do that. But those who knew when to switch off their hobby got much better rest. So your harmonious hobby can not only improve your overall well-being, it can help you sleep. So there's two quick pieces of intelligence to move you through your day. But here, without further ado, is Dr. Gail Gross. Very excited to bring this to you. Dr. Gail Gross, author of, well, I, I, I guess several books, but uh, How to Build Your Baby's Brain and the Only Way Out is Through. Thank you so much for being a part of the show today. Thank you. Thank you for having me, Gib. And before we even get started here, I believe congratulations are in order. You've just won uh, the, the um, uh, How to Build Your Baby's Brain has just won another award. Is that correct? Yes, we were uh, in 2019 when we first came out in, in uh, January, we won the number one parenting book for 2019. And now it's in, uh, in the top 10 for 2020. And then we got the Parenthood Product Award. And now we've gotten the Nautilus Book Award. <laughs> wow, that's um, that's that, congratulations! That, that this is huge. So, I, and honestly, we're honored to be able to pick, pun intended, to be able to pick your brain about this right now. The um, I, I do want to talk about the the effect that that COVID and, and and the quarantine in particular, because I think there's a lot more people. Obviously, everybody's experiencing the quarantine, whereas only a smaller percentage of people are actually experiencing the virus. So, I, I do want to talk about the effects the the quarantine is going to have on development on PTSD, on grief, as we lose a lot of things in this process. There's a lot of people, people are losing loved ones, but people are also lo losing businesses and gra missing graduations and a lot of the ceremonies and rites that we go through. I want to talk about all of that. But before we even get into any of that, um, I do want to establish a few parameters because the subtitle for your book is A Parent's Guide to Using New Gene Science to Raise a Smart, Secure, and Successful Child. So I believe before we can even begin to take apart how do we get to point to, to point B, where we're headed, 
Uh, what do you mean by secure and successful as a child? Well, you know, we, we know now because of technology what the brain looks like and what, what our behavior does to affect the brain. And so we used to always say that the brain was uh, nurture and nature in its development. And mm -hmm. we used to always say that nature was our genetic code and that that was the most important thing. But now we know that that's not true, that parents like you with your beautiful three children, parents are the true gene therapists. Mm. They ha have the control and actually determine what genes express themselves and what genes do not. So if you consider you have approximately 24,000 genes, they can't all express themselves, right. but they're, they're in your genetic code. Now, that's 50% of, of the uh, problem, but what, what affects, what determines which of those genes will express themselves has to do with the environment, mm. how, the, how those genes are stimulated or not, and um, the stress load or the allostatic load that is put upon those genes. So what is actually happening in the brain is relative to the environment and the heightened experiences experienced by that baby. And who can control that? Mom and dad. Now, mom and dad don't have to control that. And if they don't, how is it controlled? It's haphazardly controlled by the environment. So Either you deliberately determine what your child's experiences are going to be. For example, bonding. Bonding is, if you said to me, Dr. Gross, what's the essential, number one thing that we can do for children to have them reach their full potential and have their brain grow the way it's meant to grow and, and reach its destiny, I would say one simple word, bonding. Mm. Why? Bonding creates a secure child, and a secure child does better at everything. And now if you said to me, Dr. Gross, what's the worst thing to do to injure a child's development, to suppress it or halt it or um, create a situation where that potential is never able to be actually reached, I would say stress. Mm. Stress, the simple problem in all of our development, not only our emotional development, not only our intellectual development, but also in our health, our physical development. And we now real, realize that the principle under most diseases, uh, uh, the pattern of most diseases is stress, that it affects the immunities, that it affects the way we respond, uh, the way our uh, our genes, our DNA replicates, it affects every single thing through our hormones, our stress hormones. And of course, it's the same with baby's brain. And so bonding, cuddling, holding, singing, caring, meeting needs of baby, these are the things that make a secure baby. And so it's giving baby the best start. Now what we know about stress is that it's so powerful that it actually crosses the placenta when mother is pregnant with baby. Wow. And if mother is unhappy, she doesn't want that baby, if she's stressed, if she's in an abusive relationship, doesn't like her job, whatever makes consistent stress, makes her overproduce this, one of the stress hormones called cortisol. Mm -hmm. And cortisol 
This is the placenta, and it keeps infecting baby. And so when baby is born, if he's had a, a high dose of extra cortisol in utero, he looks as if he has ADD or ADHD. In fact, he's on high alert, doesn't have ADD and doesn't have ADHD, but he's an anxious baby and becomes an anxious child because he received an overdose of cortisol from mother, from her stress load. So here we are with COVID-19. Right. And we're under stress. And we're under stress because we're isolated. We're under stress because we're isolated with our feelings, hmm. our feelings that we typically distract ourselves from. You know, we're, we're, uh, we're not able to just move away from these uh, inner thoughts that perhaps are critical thoughts. And so we, and we are, we're worried about the future and we're uncertain. And that feeling of uncertainty raises our anxiety. The feeling of our, our facing our inner demons raises our anxiety. And so whatever you've used in the past to lower your anxiety, whether you smoked or had a drink or took a drug, whatever you did will intensify now because now you're isolated and alone. And what are you doing? You'll reach for the things that lower your stress load, that lower your anxiety. And babies and children take their cue from their parents. So if mother and dad are stressed, even if they don't speak about their stress, their behavior speaks volumes. And so children pick up their cues from their parents. So that's a long way around to tell you that stress is the enemy, stress changes, and, and this is very important. So this is, I always say to everybody, wait for it because it doesn't seem like it's so important. But the stress, is, the stress hormones, in particular cortisol, if it's overproduced, will, will change brain architecture and impulse control forever if it's consistent stress. Okay, so uh, that that is that is terrifying, especially considering how many of us are spending this this time under stress. Um, I guess I guess there there'd be two follow up questions to that. So one is, uh, do you have any tried and true stress reduction methods or ways of teaching your kids to help teaching ourselves to healthily process stress, process stress, and also uh, in in that way showing our kids how to do it. Um, and then the other thing is, if we let's say we ha I mean, unless you're pregnant right now or about to get pregnant which uh, I think we're all expecting a baby boom in nine months after this quarantine. But um, <laughs> the but unless you're about to get pregnant or are pregnant right now, the in utero stress is not something that we can affect anymore. So are there ways to combat what we may have done and epigenetically at the very beginning uh, now? Yes, well, the epigenetics idea is really for future generations in a sense. In mm -hmm. other words, you know, it, if we are very altruistic in our behavior, the next generation will have that change in their gene and they'll be more altruistic. And that's what we call epigenetics. But what we're dealing with in, in this stress, what we can do for our children immediately is we can teach them inner work, ways to self-manage their own stress. I did a one-year pilot study in one of our largest school districts in Texas studying um, stress reduction on math, science, reading, attendance because of health, and bullying, and what we and and I've done at least five research studies on stress and learning, et cetera, et cetera, stress and reading, and what we've noticed is that 
we can teach children to self-manage and we can teach adults to self-manage stress, which then relaxes the cortisol, lowers the, the level of cortisol and breaks that cycle of consistent, in a sense, battery fluid being bathing the body and not having any way to drain off considering that that battery fluid is the cortisol or the right, stress hormone. Right, right. So what is inner work? We have in our brain something called the default network. And the default network is a part of our brain that really makes us not feel more negative because the brain, if it's not focused, like before we got on uh, air today, I'm sure your mind was multitasking, going into many, many areas. And when the brain moves around like that, when it wanders, mm -hmm. it wanders into negativity. Oh. It, it wanders and therefore it thinks in terms of worry, things that bother you, critical things, uh, things you have to do that you think you might not meet, and your anxiety level can elevate or not, but your brain is thinking in terms of negativity. Now, if we focus the brain that's wandering around from worry to worry, negative thought to negative thought, and we focus it on anything, then we are now overproducing our positive hormones, our endorphins. We're, we're into serotonin now and epinephrine and norepinephrine. And now we're re reducing that allostatic load and now we can think in terms of feeling good feeling positive and it's in this moment when we meditate that we bring our our brains or we listen to baroque music or we uh, journal in our and we're relaxed and journaling in our journals or take long walks and feel relaxed and calm or we do progressive relaxation any of these kinds of things Simple breathing techniques are the most powerful of all. Mm. And we all know how to breathe. And so when we do these things, we are focusing the brain. And now we're linking our critical brain, the, hip, the um, prefrontal cortex, the thing that makes us human, the, where we are, our executive function comes from and our abstract thinking. We're now linking that critical thinking to our creative thinking. And so now that's where our aha moments happen. And so our hippocampus, the part of our brain that kind of looks like a seahorse, that part of our brain is where we learn, where everything we do, everything that comes out of us that's creative, that we, our memories all come from that hippocampus. But when baby is stressed, when you're stressed and you haven't had a good night's sleep, what happens? You're overproducing cortisol and the hippocampus temporarily narrows. However, if your stress is consistent, then that hippocampus will stay narrow. So we can look at a baby's brain or a child's brain or an adult's brain, and we can look at the part of the brain that's supposed to be a certain size in the hippocampus, and we can see that it's too narrow. And it could be too narrow in early childhood, or like the rings of a tree can be narrow in later childhood or in adulthood. And we can say, like a soldier coming back from the war, we don't know exactly what happened, but here's where the brain has narrowed. Something mm. has happened. And that's what we now call post-traumatic stress disorder. What Jung 
called in, in World War One shell shock. Right. But baby, baby rep really exemplifies the exact change in function where the hippocampus narrows. So where what is actually causing this overload of cortisol is the part of our brain called the amygdala. And years ago, there was an article in Time magazine, and it said, does the amygdala run everything? And the answer is yes, because the amygdala is where our emotions live. That's where flight or fight comes from. That's our primitive brain. And so we're, um, what happens to us, we're no longer fighting real tigers. We're fighting paper tigers, emotional tigers. But our amygdala operates in the exact same way as the amygdala of a caveman. So though we made great intellectual strides, we have not made any emotional strides. And our body is still preparing to fight. So it's accelerating our hormones and it's accelerating our stress hormones when we feel shamed or humiliated or anxious or angry and in any way emotionally threatened. And so when we're overproducing uh, hormones, what where are we getting that the, all of that extra hormone from? We're taking it away from our immunities. We're taking it away. So it, it affects our health. We're taking it away from all other places to overproduce so that we can be reactive in our behavior. We cannot sit down. A primitive man couldn't sit down and contemplate, hmm, what should I do about that tiger? Right. Should I right. I this? No, you didn't have time to do that. You had to react. You had to either punch him in the nose or run away. And so your body prepared itself for that kind of engagement. So your heart started pumping to save your hide. Your blood pressure went up. Your blood drew away from your skin just in case you were injured and, and you wouldn't bleed as rapidly. Your white cells overproduced, so if you were injured, you, you could fight infection. So all the things that the body did then with primitive man coming out of the amygdala, flight or fight, is what we still do. Hmm. Except we have no way to drain off that heavy dose of cortisol or, and other stress hormones because we can't if you get stopped by a policeman and you're given a ticket, you can't punch him in the nose. You have to take the ticket. If somebody hurts your feelings, you can't bop him on the head. You have to figure it out. And so what is overproduced in your body, this cortisol, stays in your body. It's like what goes on in Las Vegas stays in Las Vegas. And so all this hormone that is in, in under normal circumstances, part of our function, important to us. But when we overproduce it, it really wears our body down just like a battery fluid. And, and that's the destruction that comes. Now, if you have had a bad night's sleep and you have a board meeting tomorrow morning and you sit down at that board meeting, you are at a disadvantage in, in relation to anybody else at that table that had a good night's sleep. Mm -hmm. Why? Because you're amygdala is acting as if you're under attack, you're under stress. And so while this process slows down in your prefrontal cortex, your executive function, and while your hippocampus is temporarily narrow, the amygdala, the emotions enlarge, they, the amygdala grows in volume. And now the lowest part of your brain, the low road, I like to say, is taking over for the high road, which is your critical thinking. The critical thinking slows down. You're fighting that tiger, paper or not, real or not. And the amygdala 
enlarges and you become emotional. And so your, um, your emotions start captaining the ship. And this is how you become really, um, your memory is you're not sleeping well, gets fuzzy. Right. And your uh, learning is really at a deficit. Now that's temporary if you didn't have a good night's sleep and everything goes right back to normal the next day. However, if you're a child or you're an adult and you're under consistent stress, you hate your job, you don't like your wife, whatever it is, that will make changes in brain architecture and impulse control. And if you are under stress long enough, it looks like post-traumatic stress disorder and it makes can make permanent changes in the brain architecture and impulse control. And we see this, originally we saw it in soldiers coming home from war right. and World War I. But now we see it because we have the technology to look into the brain. We have that MRI and now we can see that it changes the brain forever. So children that are adopted like from Romania or China or Russia and they've been institutionalized for two years they have brain damage, really. And their brains have been changed. Now, if we get them before they're three and we can do inner work with them, we can bond with them, we can hold them and soothe them and comfort them and meet their needs, then they have a chance to recover if it's under three. But if not, you're dealing with a whole nother set of situations. So stress can change your child's potential. And I just want to say one, one more thing about that, which is, you know, it's very in vogue right now to let your baby cry himself to sleep, to train him like you would a puppy dog. Yeah. Train him or her to sleep. To, and, the, and the nice things we say about that are, I want them to feel safe in their own bed. I want them to be comfortable in their own bed. So I let them cry themselves to sleep. It takes about six weeks. This is really in vogue right now. And then we've trained them. However, you really haven't trained them. You've broken them. So what has happened is they've given up. They've given up. So now they do go to sleep. That consistent stress on their brain has changed their brain. I, that is, and, okay. we see, <clears throat> and we see children losing motivation around fifth grade and sixth grade. And we can now look back to these things in their early childhood and, and make a correlation, more than a correlation. Well, so first of all, I, I love that you just gave us the scientific reason for the practice of meditation. Right. I had never heard it said so um, so explicitly, like, here's what you're actually doing. And here's the, like it, 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 to me, it's always been um, it's always been in the fog. It's been, a, 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 if anything, a, a sort of spiritual practice or I feel the effects of it. But I had no idea why. So that's crazy to, to, to learn why. And I and I absolutely abide by all of the markers that you talked about for dealing with stress. Like I can focus so much better. If I sit down and meditate and or journal, and usually I can do a better meditation if I journal first because I get all my thoughts out and so I'm not worried about like my to-do list. If I've written my to-do list out for the day before I meditate, now I don't have, it's not swimming in my head. I, I've written it all down. I can just let the meditation happen. So like all of that, I have felt the effects of, but to know which parts of my brain are communicating is, is phenomenal. And I, I um, so... <laughs> 
I, I have done exactly what you're talking about when it comes to sleep training. So with my with my oldest, we were a little more adamant in trying to sleep train her. And then uh, because of just losing the war of attrition, the next two, uh, you know, are are the worst when it comes to sleep training. But uh, but also I've seen when you talk about chronic stress, like I see it more in my oldest than I do in my other two. So I guess my question is, if we've if we did some of this stuff uh, and the babies have been under stress at three, are there ways that we can unpack it? And also, are you suggesting that in order to handle the stress uh, that we're dealing with with uh, with the quarantine? that we should be meditating with our children or will meditating help overcome some of the stuff you're talking about? Absolutely. Oh, you're right with me, Gib. In my, in my second book, The Only Way Out is Through, I tell the story of why I taught my children how to meditate when they were little. And the reason I taught them how to meditate when they were little was because at that time I was a teacher and I wanted them to be good students. And I read an article in a magazine, in a women's magazine, and it talked about meditation as increasing concentration and focus. And I thought, well, that was something I could really help my children with. So when they were very little, I sat them on the bed. I didn't put them on a hard floor. I didn't make them sit in a lotus fashion. I put them on the bed and I had them lie down. Because the most important part of meditation is just that your back is straight. You, you know, we're not raised in the East. So we're not, our bodies and our muscle structure, uh, the way we develop isn't really or isn't really used to sitting in a lotus fashion and so when we sit in that fashion in a body that's not used to it our body complains mm -hmm. our necks hurt our legs hurt our waist hurts our buttocks hurts and at the end of the day we lose our focus because we hurt so the important thing is just to have a straight back i tell all children to lie down and then when, when they're rested, when they're lying down, I tell them to talk to their body, start with their toes, and move from their toes to the tip of their head, telling their toes to relax, and then to squeeze, squeeze, squeeze those toes, which is really an isometric um, tension. Squeeze, 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 and then release. And now say to your toes, toes, relax, and then move to your legs, and then all the way up to the top of your head. When you get to your face, you squeeze into a prune face. Kids love this. But the same thing works for parents. Once a week, I have friends during this COVID that are doing meditation with me over Zoom. Hmm. And we did it yesterday, and I did a progressive relaxation for them all, and they all had benefited so much from it. So you just move right through the body doing progressive relaxation. And then you tell the children, now when they're really relaxed, to feel their breathing. Breathe in with their eyes closed. They'll feel that the air coming in against their nostrils or their nose, however old they are, they'll understand the language. The air is cool. And when we breathe out, the air is warm. And so by paying attention, then if you want to meditate in this way, it's very effective. Simply paying attention to cool air coming in, warm air going out, that's a meditation. And not only is, a med is it a meditation, but it combines uh, the a focused breathing, which is very effective. Even just Baroque music, you know, this is, a, a mother came out with this um, idea of classical music. She had the right idea, she had the wrong music. Yeah, she it's went with Mozart, which is classical era, instead of instead of Bach, which is which is it needs broke. to be broke. 
Baroque music is syncopated to our heartbeat in the Andante measure, 60 beats per minute. And so if you just put on Baroque music, when I did these pilot studies in the HISD system in Houston, teachers that were not even in my pilot study would just put on Baroque music in the back of their room while they were teaching math or they were teaching science or they were teaching spelling. And just Baroque music playing in the background helped their children do better in, and appreciably better in these subjects. When my grandchildren were born, I had my children tape on an iPod, place on their iPod, all the Baroque music they could find, and to play that quietly 24-7 in the background of the nurseries. And actually, it has a huge impact. If you, while you're working, play Baroque music, what, what that does is exactly what meditation does. It throws more blood to the prefrontal cortex because you're relaxed, your circulation is better, and because of this default network that I'm telling you about, you can now, because you're focusing, you can hold images longer. Monks and mystics can hold images for days. So at the end of the day, these are things we can gain control over. We can teach children to master their own stress, to manage it. And, we, and they take their cue from us and we can manage our own stress in such simple ways that are going to waste but as, as just listening to Baroque music. I, 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 so, okay. So we, I, first of all, I, I, I've always heard when I, when I would take music classes from uh, my other friends, they would always say, you know, if it's Baroque, fix it. Um, because they, because they <laughs> didn't like the, the style of music because it is so, I mean, like you're saying that the patterns are so predictable, right? It's one of the reasons right. why, why musicians and composers evolved out of Baroque is because it's like, okay, we get it. There's a pattern. Um, so if you, if you walk through a hospital, the first thing you'll notice in the lobby, at least in Texas and many of our lobbies, have harps. Mm -hmm. And if you go to um, assistant living uh, homes, you'll notice in their lobby, people are playing the harp. So for a while, people thought there must be something healing about the harp. It's not the harp. The harp plays Baroque music. Right. And in, you know, in my book, in my second book, I talk about um, the Goldberg interludes and the, the story behind the Goldberg interludes is that there was this emperor and the emperor or king was not a very nice person so he had a very guilty conscience and he couldn't sleep very well at night and so he could call in the harpist and they would play Baroque music and then he could fall asleep so even very early on in, in the period of Baroque music, we recognized that it did something to our psyche, to our brain waves. It puts you in alpha, and that's what meditation puts you in. And that's when, circling back to the default network, when you're in alpha, when then you can link your creative thinking to your critical thinking. You know, Einstein was that it's an anecdote to believe he only used 10% of his brain. He didn't. He used all of his brain. We all use all of our right. brain. We use right. our brain. When we're in harmony, we use our brains like, a, like an orchestra. And when he was in school, he did not have a learning disability. That's another anecdote. He was a genius, and he was a genius right away, and he displayed that he was a genius right away. But because he was a genius, he got bored 
very easily. Mm-hmm. And he, when he was in, in graduate school, he kept playing hooky. And finally, when it came time to recommend people for jobs when they graduated from university, he was given a terrible job. Why? Because his professor was furious with him that he was so brilliant, but that he never came to class. Mm-hmm. So he gave him a recommendation for a terrible job, which was in the patent office. So he's in this patent office with a big picture window, and all day long he has to read patents. Well, he could get that reading done in just a few hours. And then he pulled up his chair in front of this big picture window, and he would just stare out of that big picture window. And it was from his period in that patent office with this terrible job that he had the time to relax and imagine. And he linked his critical thinking to his creative thinking. And that's where his Nobel Prize came from. That's where his major um, I, his major uh, theories came from. And so sometimes something bad works out well because of the way he was able to use that. That bad job didn't make, it didn't, make any requirements of him. Right. So there was a burden on him. He could relax and he could imagine. And his greatest work comes from that period. I mean, so in, in that way, that professor in his anger actually did the entire world a big favor because... Yes, you could estimate. <laughs> right. Had he, been, had he been, you know, having to deal with like finding efficient shipping routes or something that, that required more of him that he couldn't do in two hours... He would be, we, we wouldn't have the thoughts that you're talking about. You're getting it. That's exactly right, Gib. You got it. That's exactly right. And that, so when we put the brain, when we, when we help our brain to focus and not wander. And so when it's wandering, remember, it's feeling negative. And we focus it, we then get those positive hormones that allow it to, because we've relaxed it, we've focused it. Now we're getting those endorphins mm. and now we're able to think positively and now we're, our, our aha moments come forward out of our alpha state. And that's what Baroque music puts you in. That's what meditation puts you in and why that helps your body, your aging, the way you age and the way you, the way you walk and the way you feel and, and the diseases you get is because when we're under stress, the amygdala prepares us for fight or flight, and we've got to get those stress hormones pumping, and so we have to get an overabundance of them, and so we've got to take them from somewhere. So we take them from the other parts of our body where they're normally, and so we take them from our immunities and so forth. So when our immunities dip, when you're under stress, your immunities dip, the antigens in your lev- your body go down, the level goes down, and that's when you're vulnerable to viruses, to diseases, to everything. You know, um, I forget, Norman Vincent Peale, that's who it was. He went to a hospital and said, I want to run a test. Will you, will, will you work with me? Yes, they said, of course they would. So he said, I'm going to ask you to take a baseline blood count and of me right now and measure where my antigens are. And they did and they did. And then he said, I'm going to think of everything sad I can think of. And then I want you to come back in an hour and take my blood again and let's measure my antigens. And he he did and they did. 
And then he said, please come back in another hour. And then on video, because video is what there was in those days, he put on these funny, funny um, things like I Love Lucy and the Marx Brothers. And he laughed, laughed, laughed for an hour. And then he said, come back, take my antigens, my blood, and let me know what my antigen levels are. And so what had happened was when he was feeling sad, they dipped. And then when he was happy, they came back up. And he had his baseline and they came back up to the baseline, which was his first blood test out of the three. So we know, now we know in so many ways, that our hormones affect our immunities. That when a person has a heart attack or a person has um, cancer or whatever, whatever happens emotionally, physically, and a doctor says to them in the examining room, when did you first notice these symptoms? They'll always say, they'll always link the symptoms to some emotional event. Mm. When I had a fight with my best friend, when my partner cheated me, when my wife left me, when I got a divorce, whatever it is, there's always an event that can be linked to the onset of illness. Yeah, I mean, you're, and that's why we see so much. I mean, it's in the movies, but we also, you're absolutely right. Like, I, you, there's always those those stressful impetuses that create the the heart attack moment. And I, I've always, we've talked a lot on the show about the link between uh, stress, cortisol, and negative health outcomes, and the 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 link between sleep, cortisol, and negative health outcomes, um, or lack of sleep, cortisol, negative health, uh, negative health outcomes. But I've never known exactly why, which is that uh, pulling of the hormones from your immune system as well as the um, depressing your, your antigen growth, which is, uh, or your, your antigen production, which is, which is crazy. Um, I had no idea that, that's, that it was that physiological, that there was that much, um, that there was that much associated with it. So I, what I'm also did hearing, you, go ahead. Did you ever see the movie Psycho? I mean, yeah, of course. Yeah. Okay, so you remember that scene, that scene that has changed life for, for almost everyone who's ever seen it. I for mean, everyone who's ever take... taken a shower. <laughs> and so you're sitting in a movie that you bought a ticket for. So you know that you're entering an area, a space that's make-believe. Right. You've purchased the ticket. You're sitting in the dark in this movie to watch actors on a screen make-believe. Now, you know that. But you're watching this movie and suddenly Tony Perkins picks up that knife and he's a, about to stab Janet Lee in that shower and you scream and you jump out of your seat and, and the intensity building up as he approaches, your heart is racing, your blood pressure goes up. Why? Because our brains cannot distinguish what we're experiencing as real or not real. Mm. And so when we are in that movie, we're, our, brain is re our brains are registering those experiences as real. So memory, no memory is really stored as clean, pure memory, which is why everybody's memories are different. When we store a memory, we store the memory in conjunction with the way that we felt when we had the memory, right. the feeling we had when we experienced an event. And that's what is stored together with our memory so that the memory is changed by the way we felt 
when we experience the event. Now think of a child going, watching uh, scary cartoons or a, uh, or a little older child playing video games and get it, giving, uh, getting a high dose or a consistent dose of these kinds of violent media experiences. The movies, even children's, even PG movies, a level of violence that's really too much for our brain. So what do you think actually happens? We know what happens. Actually, we've known what happens since the 60s, but because of marketing and, and things such as that, We've never really addressed these things. Now we can see them with MRIs and CAT scans and ultrasound. So we have to be able, we have to be willing to address them. So what really is happening? What's happening is these children are watching these movies where somebody's being hurt or beaten or whatever, and they're registering it in their brain as if, wait for it, it's happening to them. Mm. So they're what they're experiencing on the screen or in a video game or in on TV and they're storing it in their brain as if they are being abused. Now, if they're getting an hour of that once in a while, that's one thing. If they're getting an hour of that every day, that's another thing. Now we're talking about changing brain architecture and changing impulse control because that child who may come from the happiest home of all is actually experiencing being abused and registering in and the brain is registering this child as being abused and that's changing the brain in concert with that experience and the feeling that the child had watching just like you jumping out of your seat watching Psycho. Right. And if you watched an hour of Psycho every day, it would have a certain effect, even as an adult. Watch two hours of violence a day, it'd have a bigger effect, even as an adult. Even if it's acute like that? Even if it's acute. Interesting. Know so it. Just like you know, you're walking into the movie, you bought a ticket, and you're watching uh, something that has you know, logically, is an, uh, make-believe. In fact, when I have to watch something like that, I tell myself, going into it, remember, Gail, this is make-believe. Remember, these are actors. Because if we allow ourselves the full immersion into the violence, our brain is registering it as if we are experiencing the violence. And so we're a species that's actually biologically becoming more peaceful and altruistic through what you were saying, epigenetics. But what is happening to us now is to compensate for us becoming more peaceful, we're making our children more violent. And we're doing it through the games we've created and the media that they watch and on and on and on. I, I mean, I, so I, the irony of that is I actually know a lot of people who work. Um, I, I make movies and I know people. I've, I've been in, in slasher films and I know people who make them. And for the most part, the people that do that, uh, that make it and who enjoy that genre uh, are more some of the better adjusted people that I know. Is it because... Are they psychopaths and they're convincing me otherwise, or are they? Do they naturally separate themselves so much from it that that's the, that that makes them uh, more immune to this sort of uh, parasympathetic, the sympathetic 
response that you're talking about. When you're creating something, you're taking it apart piece by piece by piece. Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. because you're taking it apart piece by piece by piece, because you're creating it, the brain is operating from another place. The brain is, you know, you're, when you make a movie, you, you like slide one, slide two, putting it together. Mm-hmm. So that thinking part of your brain takes you out of the imagination part of your brain. You see, you're... Your critical thinking is working the construction of this movie or this whatever, whatever. And so it overrides, if you will, or it doesn't link as well to your experience because you've altered your experience by knowing that you're creating it yourself. But when you're imagining something through somebody else's creation that you're watching, now those those scout that scaffolding that structure doesn't exist and now you're in it you're absorbed in it you don't know what's coming up next that's the difference so should we all i mean should we really all just be watching mr rogers like is that the only thing that we should be binging during this time well i'll tell you this we know we can measure cortisol in your saliva just simply doing that and we know that when people, when adults want to watch an hour of violence, the cortisol goes up in their, mm. in their body. If they watch two hours of violence, they have more cortisol in their body and on and on. Now, if we, and, and they're more a lot, and they're more likely, this is the other thing we know, because they registered it as abuse or them being abused in their brain, they're more likely to do what? be reactive right, and abuse themselves and be abuse themselves. Right. You know, in the sixties in a psych class that I took, I'll always remember it. <clears throat> it was 1964. And in this class, the professor showed cartoons <clears throat> to, and it was a study into a little boy and the little boy was sitting in a room watching the cartoons that were violent. It was Tom and Jerry and Tom picked up a, rub uh, a cartoon bat and he started batting Jerry over the head with it. And right. in the room, this little boy was a rubber bat and then a lot of other toys. When the movie was over, the little boy went right for the bat and he picked up the bat and he started banging all the dolls and other toys that were lying on the floor in the room. <clears throat> we are social animals and we learn by imitation. That's how we learn. We're primates. Where uh, the thing that separates us from all other primates is our very large prefrontal cortex. Right. But that very, but but we still are social learners. This is Albert Bandura's work, years and years and years ago. So we learn from in, in imitation, monkey see, monkey do. That that's how we learn. You know the whole story about the hundredth monkey. We learn by imitating, and so do our children. Most most importantly. So you have to be what you want to see, number one, and you have to realize your children are really watching you. When my daughter was little, I used to always multitask. So when I was right. on the phone with very long wire, I was cooking, I was, I was doing nine things at once, setting the table, and when my little daughter was imitating being a grown-up and talking on the phone, what do you think she did? She kept walking back and forth the way I did because that's what she thought you did to be a grown-up. She imitated what she saw. Right. That's how our, 
That's how we learn. And that's why isolation is so hard on us. Isolation, how do we punish people? We put them in isolation. Why? Because isolate, we're social animals. We're primates. And we're a unique kind of primate, but we are still a primate. And we, as Desmond Morris called us, the naked ape. We're different because of this prefrontal cortex, but we are in many ways very social like all other primates. And we don't like to be isolated. And, when, and, and the other thing we do to punish people, if you're uh, in World War II or the Vietnam War, we keep people from sleeping. We deprive them of sleeping. And so when you deprive somebody of sleeping, what happens? The unconscious overproduces and it crosses into consciousness and enlarges and crosses into consciousness. So you act out your, your dreams. You are walking around having an awake dream like a sleepwalker because you've been deprived of sleep and all of the hormones connected to that. And mm. so it's, it's very important to dream. It's very important to get a good night's sleep. Years ago, there was an article from Harvard, and it called us the Sleepless Society. Sure. And we need more sleep. Our children need more sleep. <clears throat> and what, when our brain is asleep, we go into a section called REM. We go into about five REMs at night. And that's when the brain, and that's coming out of the learning part of our brain, the memory part of our brain. And so our brain, in a sense, is, is restoring itself. But the dreams we dream are very important and they and they lead they key us into our lives, what what we need to do and what we need to know. And that was Carl Jung's work, so much about this archetypal symbology that comes to us in our dreams. And so another thing to do to reduce stress and do inner work is to keep a dream journal and pay attention to our dreams. They'll tell you everything. Oh, and, and with it <laughs> when you say they tell you everything like i'm assuming it's not the sort of mystic symbology that that prevails in, ter in dream interpretation but would it be more just the certain subconscious yearnings that 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 exist in our dream is that is that why it tells you everything well freud and jung of course you know they 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 were they worked together for a number of years i think it was eight years Freud was the elder and the senior. And Jung reached for Freud when he had a patient that he was working with with free association. And so Jung had, had recognized from his early work in Basel University when he became a psychiatrist, and his first dissertation he wrote was on um, schizophrenia, in those days called precox. And he recognized that that there was this bleeding through from the unconscious into conscious, conscious mind in a schizophrenic. And so he contacted Freud because he recognized that the only unedited information that came out of us was either for, from free association, and we now call that the Freudian slip, hmm. or a dream. Now, Freud was not in any way spiritual. Jung was. Jung believed in the important understanding that we were not just a mind and not just a brain, but that there was a spiritual context of, of archetypal symbols that we inherit at birth, 
just as if you would inherit brown hair, blue eyes, blonde hair, red hair. So that there was a gen there was a genetic component to the symbolic archetypes, and we in we inherited those at birth. So the one thing they agreed on was the power of the dream. Now remember, Freud was coming from a non-spiritual place, and he said that the dream was the key to the unconscious. And Jung, on the other hand, said, the dream tells you everything. It tells you, because the dream is from the unconscious, and the unconscious is who you really are. And the unconscious is constantly trying to open up a dialogue, and the language it uses are symbols. So to understand, and the symbols are collective all around the world. They're the same. So to understand how, what your unconscious is trying to say to you, you had to learn the language of the symbols. And, and when Jung and Freud traveled to, to America for a conference, this is where they had their split, really. And Freud was uh, analyzing Jung's dreams and Jung was analyzing Freud's dreams. And Freud had a problem with his father. He would talk about him and pass out. And Jung had a problem with his mother. She was, um, for a period of time, hospitalized with um, mental illness. So uh, Jung was famous for saying, my mother is wonderful during the day. I'm afraid of her at night. And so at the end of the day, they were coming from two different components. One was spiritual. One was was scientific. And we all think of Freud as a psychiatrist, but he was the father of psychiatry. What he actually was, was a neurobiologist. Mm. So he recognized this brain that I'm discussing with you, which Paul McLean would call the triune brain, the prefrontal cortex being our executive thinking, the hippocampus being our learning and, and memory, and the amygdala, our emotions, flight or fight. And so he recognized this very early, though he couldn't see it. He didn't have the technology. So Freud is actually having a renaissance today, a rebirth, because now we can look into the brain and see that what he supposed was actually there. But what's very interesting about it is in the days of uh, following yogis and mystics and swamis, they understood the three-part brain also though they didn't see it in that way. But the way they meditated confronted all three parts and unified them. Oh, wow. And, and Jung would say that the answer to health was the union of opposites. And of course, that's when he writes about the shadow and that being half of who we are and disown material that has to be integrated back for another day of conversation. But... Yeah. But this is what, getting back to this period of COVID-19, this is what children are experiencing, the stress of isolation, the stress of not being able to see their friends and be with their mm -hmm. friends, walk with their friends. And in some cases, I have a niece whose husband works in a place where there's a lot of COVID-19. Somebody just died the other day. And so he's isolated himself my nephew-in-law, from his entire family yeah. because he didn't want them to be sick. So his children, three little children, all under the age of five, are really being traumatized because they can't see their daddy. Right. And they're 
they're trying to work it out, looking through a plastic wall or, you know, uh, covering a door opening or whatever. But they're, tr they're trying to meet these demands in, in a, uh, some way, but it's very difficult. Mm -hmm. So all experiencing, this is the bottom line, all of us are experiencing some form of post-traumatic stress. Now, it won't change our brain architecture if it's temporary. If it becomes something that's two years, it will absolutely change our brain. Can we, can we start to, I mean, if, if, if we practice this, so what I'm hearing you say is a couple of things. One is we should be meditating uh, regularly, whatever that practice looks like, is focusing on the breath and, and quieting the mind and letting the thoughts go and... Um, that's that, and, and thinking of re relaxing every part of your body before you do that, and then focusing on the breath. And I love and your. You, go ahead. And you can use a mantra if you wish, which is right. something. It's a nonsense syllable like "Om" is the universal mantra, because it, because it's a nonsense syllable, or it's really a Sanskrit tone. Because of that, we don't attach any meaning to it, so our brain can focus on it without thinking, right. without falling into the default network. But I, I want to say one other thing. We have another thing in our brain called the um, uh, cognitive dissonance. Right. Now, I, I'm on this island in Hawaii. Yeah, good for I, you. Not too long ago, we had a volcano erupt here. So it was terrible. We had sulfuric acid in the air and everybody had to flee the island. But there were people who lived at the foot of that volcano and had homes there at the foot of an active volcano. Now, this is called cognitive dissonance. In our brain, in our optimistic part of us, we don't believe that some danger that's close to us will really hurt us. And so we think, oh, wow, uh, there's a volcano that's active, but it won't really erupt. I can live at the foot of it. Right. It's why, it's why we put our hand in the lion cage. Exactly. But a person who's two miles away from that volcano, or like me, who's on the other end of the island, and says, uh-oh, that volcano might erupt. Better get off the island. That's cognitive dissonance. The closer you are to danger. So now let's talk about COVID-19. Here we have this rule. It's highly contagious. And we spend this period of time in isolation. And now we people are tired of being isolated and they want to get out and about. And that's also normal. But we know that there's a safe way to get out and about, wearing a mask and, ne if necessary, gloves. And so, but the cognitive dissonance says, it's not going to happen to me. It'll happen to somebody else. It won't happen to me. And that's when we see people, even in the very beginning, not protecting themselves, really, and by doing that, protecting others, not wanting to do that. Now, this heavy thing that happens with rules and regulations, that affects another part of our brain, the part of us that always wants to be free and independent. And so, you know, it's, it's smart to engage the adult part of us and have that adult part understand the consequences and then to invite the adult part of us into helping all of us rather than arresting people and doing these dramatic things. And so at the end of the day, getting back to cognitive dissonance, we really tend to feel that danger 
is not close at hand. And so when we look at an adolescent, what do we know? We know an adolescent is not finished growing. His brain is not, or her brain is not finished until about the age of 25. If our brains were completely cooked and baked the minute we were born, then we couldn't be born the way, we couldn't get our head through the canal of our mother, the birth canal of our mother. It wouldn't be possible. Our heads would be the size they are now, and we couldn't be born. Because remember, something happened about 100,000 years ago, which made us this giant prefrontal cortex that made us human in a certain way that other primates, remember, do not have. And so unlike other primates and unlike other animals, we're not born developed. We're born undeveloped, underdeveloped, and we're helpless at birth. And this is where all the importance of meeting baby's needs, not having baby scream and cry all night, is is important because baby really relies on us to meet his needs, to meet her needs. They're completely helpless for food, for sleep, for protection, for diapering, for warmth, for cold. And therefore, if those needs are not met in a loving and bonding way, they start overproducing cortisol. So we're really where we began. And cortisol, if it's, those needs aren't met consistently, will be overproduced and it will change the developing brain. And so we, we understand how the brain develops and we understand the ages and stages of the developing brain, which is what my book, How to Build Your Baby's Brain, is really all about. We can then approach each stage deliberately, knowing what baby can do at this stage and what we can do for baby at this stage, which will help baby reach his or her full potential. I mean, for that, for those le- the, that level of detail, you've got to get how to build your baby's brain, uh, which <laughs> which a link to where to buy that in the show notes. We've gotten into a lot of detail, but if you want to go stage by stage, that's the way to do that. What I'm hearing you say is that we need to be meditating with our kids. We need to be meeting our kids' social emotional needs right now because it's it's a scary time. Um, playing Baroque music, but also letting them be bored because obviously letting them watch, sh- bin- uh, letting all of us binge watch shows with a lot of death and destruction and, and, and stress uh, is, is, is not going to be good for our bottom line and uh, for, for our bottom health line as well as for our kids. So, but also this idea of boredom, of letting our brains be bored for a little bit and letting them, and then accessing that, uh, that creative center is, is key. I, I think we. I think we haven't been doing that. You know what think I of, think of Einstein looking out of that big picture window. I write in my book that the most important activity for a child is absolutely unorganized private play, allowing your child to play freely by themselves with their own imagination in whichever way they choose. Not to I let my kids play a lot unorganized right now because I'm working from home. So they're they're playing all by themselves all the time. Well, that's brilliant because actually, where does all creativity come from now that we've discussed the brain? It comes all creative activity comes really from play, from allowing the brain to play. Because in playing, we're relaxed. And when we're relaxed, 
we're in alpha. And when we're in alpha, we can link our creative thinking to our critical thinking. So we want children to be playful. You know, think of Einstein playing his violin or really in many ways being like a child, being playful like a child, because you, you'll notice, I don't care who the inventor is, I don't, they, what they're, all the, the, the willingness to try again and try again and try again comes out of that part of the child that plays. If you ever watch a child play, they're very intense about doing one thing and they're focused on that one thing, whatever it is that they're trying to get a shoelace through a hole or they're trying to get a peg through a hole or they're trying to put on their doll's hat or feed their doll or whatever it is, they really are all in for whatever they're doing. They don't multitask. And so play is bonding is number one. Play is number two. And remember, no, until the age of three and then hopefully even later, no child should be sitting in front of a computer. Zero. Nobody. Well, that's all kids are doing now. We're just Zooming with our friends. But guess what? Guess what? Before the age of three, in the developing brain, yeah. what the brain, when the brain sees these flashing images coming at it, it puts that brain on high alert, very similar to ADD and ADHD. And if children get a steady diet of flashing symbols and the way the computers interact, they are affecting their brain architecture, not once in a while, but for good. And the other thing is too much television until the age of three is very hypnotizing. If you think about it, it's not interactive. No. In fact, I've created a program for children. I'm working on the animation right now. But it's, it's for children that are in, just in temporary program for this time. And it, it's really about talking to children about their feelings rather than, uh, you know, throwing images at them. And, um, but rather making it interactive. Mm. That's what children need. They need. And so TV is hypnotizing. And because it's hypnotizing, it hypnotizes the brain. But if it's interactive, and then non, and nonviolent and non-stressful, nonviolent, not and not and no flashing symbols. In fact, I have to congratulate Sesame Street for years ago recognizing that flashing symbols weren't good for the developing brain in early childhood, and they stopped doing it. They were wonderful in the way they amended their programming. I I've, I've always had great respect for Sesame Street as a result of that. And Mr. Rogers is very good. Yeah, he, address, he addresses children's feelings. Yeah, and it's, it's direct and it's slow moving and it, and it has a lot of room for emotional experience for everybody. Um, yes. So I, yeah, no, and by the way, not for nothing, but that show holds up. You know, it, it, some, yeah, some shows that, are, that were made 30 years ago do not stand the test of time, but we, I put on Mr. Rogers and it works still. Because remember, remember about our amygdala. Our amygdala is our emotional place. And that holds our flight or fight. And we are absolutely no different emotionally. This is a hard one to accept than our primitive cavemen mm -hmm. relatives. Right. We're different intellectually because of our big prefrontal cortex. But our emotions have stayed the same. We're still stuck 
in the flight or fight system. And therefore, the amygdala, our emotions, when we're stressed, enlarges in volume. And when normally it's not the captain of the ship, the prefrontal cortex is our, pre our executive function. When we're upset, when our child is upset and has a crying temper tantrum, they're moving not from the high part of their brain, not being the captain right, of the right. They're moving from their emotions, the low part of the Again, ship. Being reactive instead of creative. So that all of that comes from a reactive center. And, and that low center becomes the captain of the ship when they're stressed or upset. Yeah, yeah. So if your baby's having a temper tantrum, you cannot reason with your baby. Oh, I, I, you, I, you're telling me. <laughs> I've I know. But what you can do is you can pick up your baby and change their environment. That's the fastest, most wonderful way, most effective way to stop the temper tantrum. Pick right. up baby, even if they're kicking and screaming, pick them up and change their environment. On the other hand, if baby is focused and concentrated in his or her play, you don't abruptly pick them up and move them away and say, now it's time for supper or now it's time for bed or whatever, whatever. Because by doing that, you the children don't like change and they don't like rapid change and mm -hmm. they get upset. Yeah. So what you have to do is work them into it. Okay, mommy's coming in five minutes and we're going to get ready for dinner. We're going to wash our hands. Daddy's coming home or daddy says mommy's coming home or mommy and daddy just both come home and say, let's wash our hands. But whatever the family's structure is no matter what we have to give children time to adjust to make these shifts these shift to shift states if you will and the other thing the most other important thing is to use complex language when talking to our babies not baby talk not parentese not all of this stuff complex language you know babies learn language in the womb they're learning language, they're learning their mother's language in the womb from four months on. This is Patricia Cole's work. From four months on, they are hearing their mother's rhythm, their mother's tone, and their mother's language as if they're listening through an echo chamber. And that's how they pick up a language so quickly. By the time they're two years old, without ever opening a grammar book, they have picked up English or, or Hindi or... Um, Whatever language, they've picked up Japanese, whatever, from their mother. And pretty soon they start exiting all other sounds that have nothing to do with their mother's language. And they focus on the sounds of their mother's language. Mm -hmm. And so that's how they learn a foreign language so easily. Now, a child can learn five languages if different people consistently speak those five languages to them, but not crisscross, just each person, each individual language. And they'll pick up those languages without an accent because the brain is ready for language and can learn languages because you've hit that optimal window without an accent. But at the age of five, that slows down. By 10, if they learn a language, a subtle ear can pick up an, a, a foreign accent in a, a new language. But if you talk to your child in complex language, you can raise their IQ 20 points. Wow. And that, yes, and that is what we now recognize because you're building this associative mass in the brain 
and the brain is making more connections, more associations. So if you make short commands and talk baby talk, baby's just hearing short commands and not making that big associative mass. But if you speak in complex language, you're building more and more and more connections in the baby's brain. Yeah. Um, So far, you've pointed out a lot of things that I've done wrong as a parent, but that's one thing that I actually did okay with. Um, I did an okay job. I I would always read, and I got made fun of a lot for it, rightfully so, but I would would read The New Yorker to my baby uh, when she was really little because she didn't care what I read, and I was like, this is the article I want to read, so I'll just read it out loud to her instead of reading a baby book. Um, So that was the only good thing I did. I think you're brilliant, Gib. And actually, that more if everybody did that, it would be great. Yeah, and but reading then I, to children, but that's then I, bonding and complex. That's great. But I also let them do other. I, I've like we apparently we've watched way too many complex things, and and uh, um, and I, I ferberized my my oldest for a while. So I I, I feel like uh, there's a lot of unpacking that has to happen. I owe them a lot of uh, meditation subscriptions. But, you know, they'll love doing it with you, and it's never too late, and yeah. especially if you're still young. And, and the thing of it is, as I said, when the brain is in harmony, it acts like a big symphony in an orchestra. Mm-hmm. And, in fact, we put electrodes on all the people playing an instrument in an orchestra, and they play music. And we watch in a very short period of time all those electrodes show us that their brains are all moving together as if they're in a symphony, which they are in an orchestra, playing a symphony in an orchestra. That's amazing. So the brain really uh, responds like that. And so it's really Baroque music and, and meditation. And if you pay attention to your children's dreams, then you'll also help them. Because often children worry at night, they have problems going to sleep at night. And my granddaughter, because I was in Hawaii and she was in Houston and she was little and she woke her parents up in the middle of the night. and She said, Daddy, I have to call Grandma. This was during Hurricane Harvey and she was worried about all the people in Hurricane Harvey that were having trouble. And he said, oh, Sammy, we can't call Grandma this late. It's just too late to call Grandma. She said, oh, no, I can call my Grandma anytime. She's Hmm. my confidant. (laughs) Now, this was this little tiny... (laughs) And she did call me and we talked about her feelings and we talked about her dream and what that meant. And she went right back to sleep. Nice. And my grandson also would call me with a dream. I would tell him what it meant and he'd go back to sleep. So it's wonderful to share that with your children. And it's very, when children are little, it's easy to read their dreams. And so you can help your children uh, relax, not just by telling them go back to bed, but by spending a little time with them so that you address their feelings and talk to them about their dreams. And now they can go to sleep. And as they get older, let them keep dream journals. Mm-hmm. And you should keep a dream journal. And then you should keep an emotional journal. But here's what I say about that, Gib. You should write down your feelings all the time, really, because you don't want to suppress them. But you shouldn't leave them lying around or even save them in a lockbox, so to speak. You should write them down, unedited, look at them, and tear them up and throw them away. You don't want anyone you love to hear your unedited, angry feelings or, <laughs> or 
anything like that, but you must get them out. And if you do, if you work yourself with your own feelings, you become the master of your own ship because you become able to manage your own stress. And we get, we end where we began. Bonding is everything. Stress can be very, very damaging. Now, stress can be helpful if it's used in a conscious way. In other words, there was a study years ago and people used to think A-type people dropped dead from heart attacks and B people were healthier and actually C people were the healthiest emotionally. Now we know just the opposite. C people and B people drop dead from the heart attacks and A people give the heart attacks and because they're in (laughs) control, because they feel they're in control, it's that feeling you're in control. You can handle it. You can do it. You can make it. That keeps your stress hormone down. It keeps your, your, uh, the right amount of stress to get the job done without being injurious. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, we, we, there's, okay, so there's a lot of takeaway here. Uh, but the big, for me, the big headlines are we need to be listening more to Baroque music. We need to be bored more. We need to be meditating. <laughs> and we need to be listening to our subconscious but not letting anybody else look at it. I mean, like, if, I, if, I had to, if I had to bullet point out the 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 takeaway for me from a lot of this and also stay bonding to our kids right like the some of this most important bond and, and and not actually being bored it's just being relaxed unstimulated it's just not not making you that's right you know and we always talk about i i have to do this i have to mm-hmm. do this but actually to, with, with there are times when you just have to be and you know that if we go back to the Bible and you think about Moses, and he says to God, "What is your name, God?" I and am. God says in he, I e yeah e e yeah I am that I am, and that translates in Aramaic as I am being, I am in ever creating, I am being. So when we're being, we can create. Mm. We're not we're we're being, we're existing, we're expanding. I love that. I love that. Look, uh, I we've been talking for a very long time, and I know your time. You have a an ocean to go stare at um, while you're in quarantine. Right. right. Before I let you go, there's a few questions uh, I want to get to. One is what uh, what meditation guide do you recommend? Do you have one on your website, or or is there like an app that you like for kids and for adults? Well, I created eight meditation tapes and I putting them for for free on my website. They're going to go on this next week for free. And there there's several on how to enhance children's learning, so they're for children, and there's several for adults how to reduce stress, and there's how also how children can reduce stress. So there're eight of them and they're going on for free. And they can also be found on Amazon Smile because I wanted it to be as a donation and we're working on getting them on there. But in my books, How to Build Your Baby's Brain, there's a whole chapter of yoga postures to do with children, of Qigong postures to do with children and young children and meditation techniques to do with children. And I give you the absolute dialogue to use with your children and and you can use the Baroque music. I list all the different uh, types of Baroque music. And I also um, have put meditation techniques for adults in uh, as well in my book, The Only Way Out Is Through. 
So, and that can now be gotten in soft cover. It sold so well, they put it in soft cover also. Congratulations. Thank you. You can find that on Amazon. And so and that talks about life's transitions and how to navigate them successfully, meaning consciously. So at the end of the day, um, all the techniques are really laid out that I know. And I've studied uh, meditation. I've meditated for 40, 45 years. And it's hard for me to believe. And um, so I've studied more than half my life. And I've studied with fabulous teachers, of course. I've studied with the Dalai Lama. He's stayed with me a number of times in Houston in oh, my home. Oh, of course. Yeah, he stays with me too. We're buds. <laughs> but he, I just, met- he just sent me a fax, in fact, while we were talking. <laughs> I met him in Bangalore at the risk of my life. But that's another story for another time. But the story <laughs> is in my book. And I, I studied with Swami Satchidananda for 25 years. And I studied with some... Uh, Sojo Rinpoche and Kensen Sangpo and Loban Tantrak. So I put the benefit of all of those techniques into these two books and into the tapes that you will be able to get for free. And then I will be doing the same thing with these children's classes that I'm going to create. Hopefully, hopefully they'll be up next week, both on my website and on social media. So link to uh, your your website so you can follow up with with Dr. Gross in the in the show notes so people can go there. Uh, and I'm assuming your website has links to all of your social media. And one last question, and I ask it to everybody, what is something we can all start doing today that will make our lives a whole lot better? If I were dying and I had one word to pass on to you the way that in graduate, the man says to Dustin Hoffman, plastics, son, (laughs) plastics, I would say, and I've said this in both my books, meditate. It is the single one thing you can do to benefit yourself completely. It's the natural state. It's who you're meant to be. It's the real you and therefore your full potential. There you go. Uh, Dr. Gross, thank you so much for your time today. We really appreciate it. You've given me a lot to think about and a lot of um, stuff to dive into therapy with. So thank you. <laughs> you can call me anytime as a friend. <laughs> as a friend. Yeah. Thanks. You're so smart. I, I don't think you've done anything really wrong. I think you've been a great parent because the most important part of parenting is simple. It doesn't take education degrees. It doesn't take... PhDs. It's simply bonding. Bonding is the whole enchilada with children. Yeah. A well-bonded child is secure, and a secure child with low anxiety approaches everything in a, in a more effective way. Thank you for that. Dr. Gross, thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Gib. Bye-bye. Aloha. <laughs> oh, jerk. <laughs> That's it for our show today. Thank you guys so much for listening. If you want to follow up, there are links to where to follow up by to buy Dr. Gross's book in the show notes, as well as to check out our website. I highly recommend you go deeper. If you want to follow up with us, John is on Facebook, facebook.com slash John Tesh. We spend most of our time. We're going live there all the time during quarantine, doing all kinds of special events there. Check that out. John is also on Instagram at John Tesh, uh, at John Tesh underscore IFYL, and on Twitter at John Tesh. I am Gib Gerard. Facebook.com slash Gib Gerard uh, on Twitter and Instagram at Gib Gerard. You can follow me there. 
I, I post about the show, try to respond to every message or, or comment about the show. Because uh, uh, if, so, if you guys have somebody that you, you want on the show, let me know, and I will try to get them. A couple of our guests have actually been from recommendations from from you guys, the listeners. So I am very responsible because I do the show for you guys because it's your show. So thank you so much for listening. 